Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to the Less Stress Life Podcast, where we help women and families overcome fatigue, food sensitivities, and inflammation. The goal here is really to help you heal yourself. If you find this show or episode helpful, repay the favor and share it with a friend or leave me a review on the Purple Podcast app if that's where you listen. I'm your host, Krista Bigler, integrative dietitian nutritionist and lover of all the foods and my chickens. In this episode, I'm going to explain the differences between the two major tests on the market for mycotoxins, which is the toxins that molds produce. Each mold can produce hundreds of different mycotoxins. Why I tested the symptoms I was having and the varying symptoms that colleagues and clients sometimes have. And then my key takeaways on testing, which I'll just tell you right now, is the test positive and how severe is it? Both from not only symptoms, but also testing. So let's get into it. So I've been spending a lot of time talking about mold lately. And do you remember in episode 228 how we're missing subclinical hypothyroidism, like the labs are fine, but you're not fine edition of thyroid? I feel like this is a similar version with mold. Um, And not saying it's like necessarily one or the other. If you have mold, for sure your thyroid would take a dump too. Um, Mold affects every single system. But the point is, is that I used to look at mold from only a very severe status. And from the thyroid perspective, that was, oh, are your labs out of range? Oh, they're not. Okay, you're fine. Or your doctor should have taken care of it. And that no longer is okay because people walk around with these symptoms of thyroid or of mold. And sometimes the test isn't picking it up perfectly. So we're going to talk about the testing today and the pros and cons because spoiler alert, I use the same urine and the test results were completely different. So It is what it is. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about the mycotoxin test and why I did it. And I was thinking I needed to get this published because a friend of mine sent me um, a voice memo the other day asking me about testing. And I was like, hold your horses. Let me just tell you about my experience um, before you get crazy about it. So I did this mycotoxin test one just to see if there was, if I had pros and cons to the test, first of all. Um, In reality, this test was sat, these two tests sat under my 
bed for months and months and months because sometimes it's hard to get this done. I like to provoke mycotoxin tests. That means taking, I want to get that um, off the cell. If there's a real historic exposure to mold, your body's going to like shove that away and store it. The body's solution to dilution is pollution. So it's going to store it in fat cells. So it's going to bury it away and have like kind of low grade symptoms that are annoying. Um, so if I've got, if I suspect a more historical or past exposure, I definitely want to be doing provoking to pull it out of the cells and into the urine because if it's buried in my body and it's not actively urine, if I'm not actively urinating out every day, the test isn't really going to pick it up. So I did the mycotoxin test because I assumed that I had some childhood mold exposure. Now, my parents still live in the same house that they moved into when I was 10. They live in a more wet climate than I live in, and their basement is humid. So that was first a thought. And honestly, there are so many members of my family. I'm fifth of seven, six or seven children. Um, my little brother died when I was seven, so I never know if I should say six or seven. Um, he died at birth, but... Uh, so I never, I, I have so many family members that have really similar fungal things. And I really think that, that fungal issues are at the root cause to a lot of health issues that are in my extended family. But anyway, if you know, you know, right. So, um, more recently in the last like year or two, we, uh, purchased a cabin and I don't think that the cabin in general has mold, but the last two owners. So there's only been two owners since the cabin was built. It's a single story. It's like a shop house. And so there is no basement. It's a concrete floor, right? There has just been two couples that have lived there in the past. And so they both had dogs. And so what was happening was when I would use the master bathroom shower, it just smelled like a wet dog in the bedroom. And I, as someone who does not own a dog, um, this, and someone who's got a sensitivity to smells because hashtag liver, um, this was not really working for me. And it was really mostly a summer problem, right? So we got this cabin in, in April of what, 21. And now it's July of 22. So, um, in that summer, I was really starting to experience that. So I went and I picked up a dehumidifier at the store and it was a white dehumidifier. And I started running that, which started to resolve, you know, the, the wet dog smell or at least mitigated a little bit. But what I noticed in the white brand new dehumidifier was that there was these little black flecks that showed up. And I was like, well, this is not really what should be happening. This should just be water, no black flecks. So that tells me that there was some black mold spores being pulled from the air probably. But more importantly, after spending a week there that summer, I had some symptoms flare that I hadn't had in years. So some of those symptoms included white coated tongue, athlete's foot, like walking on that carpet. What I presume happened was there was just some kind of moisture from this animal in this one corner and it was enough carpet and the padding under carpet is like, and actually drywall if they don't have that mildew resistant drywall, all of these are really a beautiful mediums that mold would love to eat. So it's really not that difficult if there was moisture in that place to have mold in that carpet area. And so, um, as I walked around on this carpet, you know, barefooted for a week, I had severe stuff that, that showed up. So white coated tongue, athlete's foot from walking on the carpet, a flaky scalp. Um, here's a dead ringer. Like those were all fungal symptoms, but sores at the end of my nose, like little teeny tiny ones that no one else would really notice. But I noticed, I was like, oh, that's a mold symptom. So the problem with mold, and I'm going to do a subsequent podcast right after this one about identifying mold and symptoms. It's really frustrating because there are so many symptoms. 
Some are just more dead ringers than others. So here are the rest of mine. Throat clearing after foods, which is something I had grown up with, but had gone away after different treatments. Um, but I knew that if I had treated bacterial and fungal overgrowth, that this symptom had gone away. I'd had a lot of those fungal symptoms when my health was wrecked and I was having severe eczema flare back in like 2015-ish, but I really hadn't consistently had that stuff since. Um, Also something that had kind of come and gone depending on how the status of my health was that I would get sores on my tongue after eating certain things. Now I was chalking this up as a food sensitivity, even though I didn't want it to be, but I've actually tracked this to fungus and mold. And here's why, because nuts can have mold like grains. And so it was from certain nuts and I noticed it was really from citric acid. Well, and, and I was really struggling with this because not all things with citric acid were doing this, but some things with citric acid were giving, and like this, this sore on your tongue is like hurts like hell. Um, and the thing, like I had, I'd done some things to relieve it. I knew that like some things that I'd used with zinc had helped relieve it, which that's a totally different story for a different day, but zinc can inhibit fungus. So like when you start to put all these, like you assemble all these like pieces that don't really seem to make sense. So the reason I was so perplexed by this is because you think of citric acid being sourced from citrus, but such as our fricking food system as we try to make things cheaper. So now we often grow citric acid for preservative standpoint on aspergillus or on mold. Like it's mold is the medium that citric acid is grown on. So certain types of citric acid were creating these sores on my tongue. They were temporary. They would last about like maybe 30 minutes, maybe at max an hour or two, but they were just painful. And I was like, what the what, why is this happening? Right. And it was just very periodic. And so that had kind of worsened. And these are all like annoying things that I think people walk around with all the time. And that's kind of the obnoxious thing. It's like all the little things built up. So I identified that this was probably an issue in this area, in this, in this carpet, um, in this, in the interim until the, um, flooring was replaced. What I did was get an ozone generator, that you can buy online. And they use these in hotel rooms to get the smoke out. We've used it. Um, my husband, uh, works on a farm and so they've used it for all kinds of like equipment and machinery. And if you need to get the smell out of something, yes, ozone is the way to go. Um, so ozone, by the way, is, uh, it is irritating to the lungs, to lung tissue. So you like turn it on, you must leave. You can't just like, wouldn't it be convenient, you know, to just kill this mold spores while you live there? No, like it's killing everything that's alive. <laughs> um, so it's, it's sucking that oxygen out um, and, and making that O3. I mean, don't quote me. This is what I believe is happening. So what I know happens with ozone or my understanding of ozone on mold is that it's like going to get the top layer, so to speak. Like if you're imagining a mushroom or a spore, like it gets the top, but the root is still going to be there. So you have to run the ozone generator maybe weekly. Just think about how things would normally grow back. If the conditions are ripe for growing, you know, if there's humid and wet and whatever, that's going to allow that to grow back and grow back and grow back. So by using an ozone generator, I was able to like get this under control in the short term until the flooring, that carpet was replaced. And then I had another exposure more recently. I have no idea why we did this, but we bought a water damaged car. Um, So I can go into this story more another day because I may have some interesting case study stuff. But I did some mold plates, which some people would say are not a good use. Well, for me, I think $30 like agar plates to understand what the air sample looks like is better than nothing. So I... Um, before I did my own mold testing, I'd actually done some work on that car. Now I had a really significant like filtered mask that you would use for like painting in a painting booth. I don't know if that was filtering it and I was wearing gloves and I was very careful. I was outside and it, it, it like 
awesome ventilation, not an issue there. I power sprayed um, all these carpets. I used like antifungal mold products um, from a site online that has like mold killing products, laundry additives, etc. Um, I ran ozone in this car and I'm going to redo the plates and see how that is. So these were all the potential exposures before I did my mold test. I would say that the cabin carpeting was uh, the more recent exposure. I think that I did okay with the car that I was cleaning. Personally, I was being really careful and then childhood mold. But I really, this whole process started from the childhood mold situation. Uh, I also want to mention that even though I shared my symptoms, they look different. And again, I'll do that another episode just on symptoms so you can try to self-identify. But I spent a few days with a dietitian friend last week and funny enough, her episode is coming out next week where she talks about, she shares with me her for, for the first time, what this looked like in her health. But um, I, I spent a few days with her last week and she was sharing how mold presented for her. It was actually a lot of constipation um, was a big thing, weight gain and then chronic fatigue or really needing to take a nap a couple of times a day, even though she's like a young woman. So what had happened was she was living in the same apartment for seven years, but during the pandemic, she was inside her apartment 24 seven. And so the symptoms became a little more significant or she was not able to correct them. So she worked with another practitioner that she trusted who started to identify this really is starting to sound like mold. The thing about mold is that it's really crushing the mitochondria. So it's doing a number, like it just affects every system. So it really does a number number on adrenals and resilience um, overall. I would say like your adrenals, you just look more sensitive and like you don't have very good endurance um, when there's been a prolonged mold exposure. So that was really interesting because she'd been there for a long time. Now um, she was fortunate to get it remediated because incidentally, like right after she moved, she like found, figured this out, moved out. Um, the basement flooded, the insurance covered it. It's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, it was, it was, and she no longer is in that place as she's worked through this. Um, but what I want to say is that there is severe mold, which looks like severe allergic style response. And then there's mild to moderate, which is just kind of sort of ruining your life, causing annoying symptoms, aggravating, making your tongue hurt. <laughs> so you, like it's all you can think about after you eat something. And I always use, or I always think about this client I had that was a narcolepsy case as a turning point. That's how I looked at mold practice. You know, other symptoms that improved, the narcolepsy was about the same. It was an atypical narcolepsy case where she was waking up 17 times a night. It doesn't even make sense, but tired all day course, right? And so I'm like, we don't have anything to lose by testing this mold thing. It was moderate results, but we started the protocol and she had flu-like symptoms, which is such a dead ringer for mold die-off symptoms. And then she slept beautifully for like a day or two or something. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this was like an epiphany. And so if I can share that with you, that we can't always look at things when they're like too far gone, which is sort of how we do medicine. Like, oh, well, we only care if it shows up in testing and this will show up in testing. Um, it just kind of depends on how you test and if you provoke it. But I do think that symptoms are a huge piece. All right. So what were the results of my test? And first, let me go over those tests overall. Both of the tests were positive. They had positive markers for mold, but they were not consistent whatsoever. Um, so I want to say, I want to talk about how I've handled this with clients so far. I asked my clients to do mycotoxin testing. If they do, we have a screening questionnaire, which I'll share in that next episode, or I'll kind of go over those questions. If they score above a certain number that says moderate, um, or a possible mold exposure, I found like an it's going to be kind of hard for me to share it verbally and, and give you all the exact same scores. I'm going to see what I can do. Um, but if if it's a possible mold issue, I usually have them test. Like if enough of the symptoms seem like they're lighting up, 
I want them to test because I think the role road with mold can be long and sometimes frustrating. And I don't want someone second guessing or not following through over the cost of a mold test. Like I just think that it's too expensive to go down the path of mold if it's not really a problem or if people don't believe or know it's a problem. So for me personally, I'm asking my clients to do the mold test so they can have proof so that way they can move forward appropriately. Because mold treatment execution is just too much work if you don't actually have mold. Now that said, I think before I had that feeling or opinion that I've gotten lucky in years prior um, without taking mycotoxins as seriously as I do now. You know, what you, you only know what you know, and that's the true of any practitioner. So I think we've gotten lucky with just recognizing some of these symptoms as more severe fungal symptoms and turning up protocol um, overall. And then knowing if something's severe, referring to a mold specialist. Okay, so here, let me get into the mold testing. So there's a couple of main functional mycotoxin tests on the market. One is from Great Plains Laboratory out of Kansas, and the other one is from Vibrant America, who I believe is out of California. Now, Great Plains Lab has been around a long time. They do a lot of practitioner education. They host um, they host events. They're, they've really had the market uh, for a long, long time, and they are very highly respected for having good testing. They're also the makers of the organic acids test, which does test for arabinose and other organic acid markers. Some people think that the organic acid test is a stand-in for mycotoxin testing. Like if the fungal markers there are positive, then you don't need a mycotoxin test and vice versa. But I can tell you from a variety of colleagues um, and case studies that those results are just simply inconsistent. Sometimes the fungal markers on the O-test are negative and the mycotoxin test is positive and vice versa. So that's that's how it is, unfortunately. Vibrant is newer to the scene, Vibrant America. They grew very quickly. They do have quite a clinical staff. Sometimes their customer service is like hit or miss. Um, but what else I can tell you is that Great Plains Lab takes longer. Right now, this is the current, the current um, I just want you to know the whole back end, what it looks like. The Great Plains Lab test is taking a longer time, like two to three weeks, and the Vibrant is coming back in seven to 10 days. It is a little different technology. Vibrant is able, when I did some continuing education on this a few years ago, my understanding is that Vibrant is using a different kind of um, testing methodology that allows them to do more tests. Um, I think they can test more markers for like the same price or low cost. So the Great Plains Lab test has 12 markers. And what it shows is basically like, it's like a graph. So zero is the minimum, of course. And then some of them have a reference range, like some numbers, it's like B under one or B under 25 would be normal. But even anything positive would be an issue or a concern. Um, But it's just showing kind of basically positive or like whether it's below the reference range. Again, any positive would be of interest. So it has 12 markers, whereas the Vibrant America one actually has 31 markers. They do... um, produce their results a little bit differently. They have, they show up in red or yellow. So red is like more like a higher number and the yellow is more borderline, like really close to the reference range overall. So there's the mycotoxin name. This reminds me a lot of like bacteria strains um, because these are myco, like it's like the same thing, but in the fungus, (laughs) like in the fungal, like there's the microbiome, um, which is bacteria and then there's the mycobiome which is fungus and so there's the mycotoxin type name and then there's the species name so the species is like the umbrella 
of like the individual mycotoxins. And remember each kind of mold, even if you can't see mold, like if you see one mold, there could be hundreds of mycotoxins being given off, hundreds of toxins. So what I can tell you from an umbrella standpoint, like the species or umbrella standpoint is that stachybotrys uh, is black mold for sure. And there's many types of stachybotrys like Ruroidin, uh, Varicarin, etc. Now Aspergillus, which is a type I'm sorry, aflatoxin, which is a type of aspergillus, is often a food-based mold. Ochratoxin, now Vibrant says that ochratoxin, and like this is not super important, but it is nice to know, like to be able to just pick out like, oh, environmental, <laughs> important. Um, and most of this stuff is gonna, like if the numbers are really high, you're gonna need to look in the environment regardless. I'm just kind of pointing out, stachybotrys is black mold, aflatoxin and aspergillus is often food-based mold. Ochratoxin, according to Vibrant, is attributed to food, but the experts at Great Plains, which are like have a lot more, to me, OG status, say that ochratoxin is more environmental um, in addition to food and that the really high levels uh, have to be coming from environment. So I've been having this chat with colleagues. We have a little mold group where we talk about this stuff. So my opinion is that if the number is really high, it's maybe a current exposure, but if it's more moderate or borderline, it might be a past exposure. And I'm just making that up based on what I'm seeing in my experience with clients. So remember the narcolepsy case I was just telling you about, she had just moderate levels and that was a historical exposure. She decided that it was a job. She had worked in a basement for six months and at that time developed some sinus congestion issues and fatigue. So that was a past exposure. And if it's more severe, I think you, it, you owe it to yourself to look at your environment, whether your work or your home, both options, wherever you spend time. I personally, despite what the directions say on the test, ask my clients to provoke all their tests. That means I want those mycotoxins pulled out of the deep cells so it's getting into the urine. So that might look like sweating through sauna or exercise. And then um, they you do your the mycotoxin catch like it's a urinary test. So you just do a urine cup. You do that first catch of urine in the morning because your body's processing crap all night long. And then that's going to be the best chance of catching mycotoxins in the morning, first catch. Um, but I have them exercise or do a sauna the day before to get up a sweat and or usually both if possible. I'll have them do glutathione, which is an antioxidant, um, an antioxidant that the liver, like it's, I always call it the liver boss, um, that would be very supportive of helping clear those toxins off of the cells. Now, if clients struggle with provocation or pulling that off the cells, so if they feel like crap, like they get flu-like symptoms, they get sweats, those are more severe ones where they're exhausted, they have headaches, they just feel like more just gross. Like I've given myself hives with dive reactions, like over history. Um, or if they feel like they have to go to bed at seven, something like that. Like if you're taking something that's stirring the pot, pulling something off of the cells, pulling toxins out, um, I say like, don't make yourself miserable, just do the test. But sometimes you don't see these horrific test results when they stop. Um, so I've had both experiences where the test results look horrific. And then even though the symptoms are horrific, the test results don't look that bad. So if the symptoms are horrific, when you're doing things that provoke mycotoxins out of the cells and you go ahead and take the test and the test isn't that bad, proceed as if it's terrible, right? Cause the symptoms are important per the symptoms are important and the test was still positive. So my takeaways are, is the test positive and how severe is it? because both from a symptom perspective and from a testing. 
And then you might want to know, you know, how long does it take to treat mold? It takes anywhere from three to four months. Like if you're really skilled and you're being aggressive, I mean, that's kind of my target time frame for these moderate to mild cases up to one year if something is severe and you can't hardly handle anything um, and you've got to go real slow. If you're living around it, uh, it'll feel like you're just, it feels like forever because you're not actually reducing, removing the source. So mantra here, treat the person, not the test. Like again, if someone's really struggling with that provocation, yeah, it's positive, right? It's definitely an issue. So let me just give you a quick rundown of what happened in my test results. So on the Vibrant America test, I showed very, very high for citronin, which is under the penicillium umbrella. Um, my level was 36 and the like reference range was under nine. So quite high. Here's the really cute part. Now, maybe there's a slight difference in these uh, mycotoxins, but same name, citronin from Vibrant, very high, um, many times the reference range on the Great Plains lab, registered zero. Absolutely none for citronin. On the Great Plains lab, I showed high, actually the only thing that showed up on my Great Plains test was high ochratoxin A. Uh, the normal range was under seven and a half. Again, I would consider any positive relevant, but the normal range was under seven and a half. Mine was about 30. And so that's quite high. And so that would be considered environmental, even though Vibrant calls that sometimes food. So it was 30 um, on, or very high on the, on the Great Plains test. On the Vibrant test, it was a five. So it was considered more of like a moderate level. Uh, also on the, so those two, it's really interesting because both tests tested for those two mycotoxins. The citronin didn't even show up on the Great Plains lab one and showed up super high on Vibrant. And the ochratoxin showed up super high on the, on the Great Plains and barely showed up on the Vibrant. And then one more, you can't really compare this one apples to apples because this particular mycotoxin, this other one was not on the, on the Great Plains. So my point is, is like, this was literally the same cup of urine that I did these tests from and there was no consistency whatsoever. So what do you make of that? Well, it's interesting. I'd like to ask the people <laughs> in charge of the tests. Um, but my takeaway is the tests were positive. And they were fairly significant, right? So are they positive? Are they severe? How are the symptoms? How is the testing? Um, and from there, I just have to move forward, right? Like I know they're positive. I'm just going to go ahead and treat. So I hope this was helpful. If it was, share it with a friend who's considering whether to do mycotoxin testing and stay tuned for the next episode where I'll go through uh, different symptoms for you can, so you can decide, could you have some mold or mycotoxin issues? 